This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making the truth journey possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And when you subscribe, you are essentially upgrading your mind. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, USB drives, and everything else we have to offer. And yes, even during tonight's interview and the books that will be discussed, MMS is prominently mentioned as a very important survival tool. By the way, there's another resource that I'm not sure you know exists, the Facebook like page. One of our associates, Samantha, is in charge of this, and every day she sends me a dozen or two stories of interest and I filter the ones I deem most interesting to you so like our Facebook Veritas Radio page and be informed of news you won't hear in the mainstream media and to get in touch with us for member support media inquiries you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com Did you know that if the power grid fails in the United States, we could be facing thousands of Chernobyls all happening at the same time? There are approximately 104 
nuclear reactors in the United States. What should we do if one of these reactors went into meltdown? Tonight, we'll discuss six trends, each of which are potential civilization busters. These trends may be forming into the perfect storm for collapse. Do we have a chance for avoiding long-term collapse of the world as we know it? Every time a natural disaster is on the horizon, like a huge blizzard or a major hurricane, the so-called experts on the radio and TV tell us what they think we need to do to be prepared. Yet, people always find themselves grossly unprepared. What things are they not telling us that we need to know? And what are some of the most important things in your 72-hour survival kit that are lacking in what these so-called experts recommend? Five acres of land and an off-grid home sound like the way to go. But quite frankly, they are out of reach for most people who are living from paycheck to paycheck. Are those without extra cash just out of luck? Or is there hope? What can we do to prepare? There are dark clouds gathering on the horizon. Collectively, they are converging to form the perfect storm. A storm of such magnitude that it will dwarf anything that mankind has ever seen. If we are unsuccessful in our attempts to calm this storm, without a doubt, it will destroy life as we know it on planet Earth. For this, and ways to survive when disaster strikes, or technology fails, and ways to prevent these disasters, and live in a sustainable world, Matthew Stein is tonight's special guest, right now on Veritas. Matthew Stein is a design engineer, green builder, and author of two best-selling books, When Disaster Strikes, A Comprehensive Guide to Emergency Planning and Crisis Survival, and When Technology Fails, A Manual for Self-Reliance, Sustainability, and Surviving the Long Emergency. Stein is a graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where he majored in mechanical engineering. Stein has appeared on numerous radio and television programs and is a repeat guest on Fox News, Lionel, Coast to Coast AM, and The Tom Hartman Show. He's an active mountain climber, serves as a guide and instructor for blind skiers, has written several articles on the subject of sustainable living, and is a guest columnist for The Huffington Post. And we have a more detailed bio on our website. To learn more about Matthew Stein and his work, visit his website at whentechfails.com and mattstein.com. Matt with one T. And directly from the High Sierra Mountains of Truckee, Northern California, near Lake Tahoe, I would like to welcome Matthew Stein to Veritas. Hello, Matt, and welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing really good. And thank you, Mel, for having me on the show today. It's my pleasure. We have to thank our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Richard Allen Miller. After we did our interview, he referred me to a lot of people. And he said, you have to... Actually, he introduced me to you, and you sent me the books, which, by the way, I love. And it's one of those books, actually both books, that you have to keep with you at all times. Because many people... Let me just start from the beginning, Matt. May I call you Matt, by the way? Sure, Matt's, Matt's fine. There's a lot of exhaustion from people who say nothing happened on December 21st, 2012. I don't want to hear about the world ending. 
people are burying their heads in the sand, Matt. And there's a Chinese proverb, I forgot what it says, or it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, who says that the future is for those who prepare. What motivated you to write these books? Well, the the Chinese proverb that I start one of my books with and on my website is, is it not too late? if one waits until one's thirsty to begin digging a well. Right. And uh, so I've, I've had concerns about the, the trends of, in our world that are headed for collapse for, for decades, but I didn't really do much about them. I was just kind of like knew that the, uh, there were storm clouds gathering on the horizon and somewhere within my life, unless I die, happened to die young, I would probably see major major collapse, major calamities in, you know, affecting large percentage of the population of the planet. But back in 1997, uh, at that time I'd had a 20-year practice of mostly daily prayer and meditation, uh, nothing fanatic, but a nice way to start my day, and, and occasionally as a design engineer, when I was banging my head against the wall and on design problems and not really happy with the solution I could figure out with my head, I'd pray and I'd meditate and I'd ask for help, and pictures would snap into my head. Well, in Thanksgiving of 1997, give or take a few days, I just made a very generic request in my morning session of prayer and meditation. I just asked for guidance, like, guide me. You know, what am I supposed to do in my life? Guide me. And I got a bomb drop in my lap on that particular morning. All of a sudden, instantaneously, I received uh, what can best be described as a storyboard pictorial outline for a massive book project that three years later became When Technology Fails. And what I was shown was a book that would help people to plan ahead and, when it happened, deal with uh, widespread failures in our highly organized and highly dependent technological society. Now, now realize that I have a Bachelor of Science from MIT, I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I grew up, my parents started me hiking, you know, at age five and camping and climbing, you know, in, in, in my, before I was 10 years old. And uh, so I've grown up, I've been a carpenter, a building contractor as well. So I'm not just one of these MIT geeks that sits behind a desk. I'm a real hands-on kind of guy. And when I received this vision, and it's the only way you can describe it, because instantaneously this massive book project, fairly well developed, was dumped into my head in pictorial moving picture outline form. And I realized that with all of my skills and all of my experience, which is far greater than the average human being, if I was dropped in the middle of the Amazon basin with maybe just the clothes on my back and no knife and no tools and no leatherman, nothing, that I may, I certainly couldn't replicate any of our high-tech society, and I may not even survive, even though I was far better equipped than the average Joe. And with that rude awakening, I realized, wow, you know, we, our society is so interdependent and so it's such a complex web that keeps everything moving in this great machine of our modern world that it really wouldn't take a lot to, you know, put the monkey wrench in the spokes and break this machine and all of a sudden the grid's down and, you know, nuclear power plants are melting down and, and no gasoline's flowing and food's not flowing and Everything is repaired and ordered and organized on the Internet, and the Internet's down. So 
it, it really wouldn't take a whole lot to put the monkey wrench in the spokes of this of this modern world. So that was the first thought. Now, actually, the very first thought when this got dumped into my head was, no effing way, I don't know all this stuff. Now, Jesus calls it the still small voice. People call it the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. This little voice in my head replied and said, no one knows it all. And it assured me that I had the skills and talents that if I chose to take the assignment on, and it always felt like my assignment and not my idea, it, it was, you know, believe me, a, a term paper in college was a major head-banging ordeal for me, and, and when technology fails is like 50 term papers wrapped up in one. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, it, it took, I didn't just say, well, you know, jump right up and say, well, you know, God talked to me today, and I'm going to write this cool book to help people out with the coming difficult times. It took me about a year to decide maybe it was a good idea. I, I dug up the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog and Howard Reingold in those days, and he thought it was a great idea. A couple other people egged me on, thought it was a great idea. And then a second year to write a proposal and find a small-time publisher to, to take, you know, give me a modest advance. And, and then the third year, I you know, bit the bullet and, and racked up the credit cards and put my engineering business on hold. And worked 70 hours a week and finished it off and made it happen. So I figured over the three-year period, I had about two years of labor into it and uh, most of the equity in my home. You know, right now, I think of the power grid. There's so many things that could happen. An EMP. And when people think of EMP, they think an electromagnetic uh, pulse bomb that could, you know, be dropped by maybe, uh, you know, a rogue country. But this could actually come from the sun. Then we have the hacker attacks. It seems that so many possibilities could converge into one thing, the power grid. And without the power grid, the world as we know it, at least here in the United States and any developed country, it, it just stops. How can we mitigate this situation? Well, there's mitigation on a larger scale and mitigation on a small scale. <clears throat> on a small scale... You develop the self-reliance and resilience locally. Uh, you know, there's the personal, like me, my family, my immediate friends. Then there's a community level, and then there's the, the state and national level. So on the personal level, it's doing things like making sure you've got the ability to purify water and find and get water. Like you, you said that you live in Tucson in the desert, and when uh, when the grid goes down, Suddenly, you know, that big aquifer underneath Tucson that, that pumps water that keeps the city going, uh, you know, try to get to that when you don't have any, any power. Uh, there's very little surface water in Tucson, and most of that is, you know, I mean, what, there's that little park outside of town that, that has the creek that comes and goes in the water, and, you know, I've, I've been there, <laughs> so I know that. And what is a city, you know, how many, you got a million people or something in Tucson, half a million, I don't know how big a it million, is. A million, yeah. Yeah, so what does a million people do when there's, you know, that little reservoir on the side of town is about the only surface water you got, unless maybe it's a big rainfall in the wintertime. What what happens to that million people all of a sudden, you know? And and, uh, and then if there's no grid and there's no gasoline pumping, how far are they going to get out of town on, on the gas that's in their tank? And and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of ramifications there. So you got to think ahead, like, wow. In this situation where the grid is down, what do I do? How do I survive for three days, five days, a week, two weeks, a month, six months, a year? 
you know, and, and then you have to think about the threat level and, and your level of paranoia or concern of do you think it's going to go down long term? And, and uh, you, you know, you're running the show, but I'd like to talk about the real possibility and not just possibility, but probability that it will go down for a very long term, like months, possibly years in some places, but many months in, over most of our country. And uh, due to just a natural event from the sun, which is guaranteed to happen, it happens every uh, 75 to 100 years on the average. It's been 90 years since the last time it happened. And and so it, it's like a guaranteed event. Now, so on the personal level, it's how do I deal with myself, my family, my friends, whoever I want to consider in the short term and possibly long term if it's down. Then on the community level, it's like, okay, can we build... Local resilience. There's a wonderful movement called the Transition Town Movement. And uh, there's the books by Hopkins, Rob Hopkins, on the Transition Town Movement. And that's people who've been very concerned about the peak in world oil production and getting communities to start thinking ahead and planning ahead for the decline, which we're right at right now. We're kind of like on the peak right now. It's never going to get, they're never going to get any more hydrocarbons out of the ground than they're getting now. And they're going to, and they're seeing diminishing returns and, and having to do things like burn, you know, a barrel of, of oil for every half, every barrel and a half or two barrels they get out to, to get like tar sands out of Canada. So it's like flaming up all of this oil just to get the oil out of the ground and because the easy to get to stuff is mostly gone. So it's, you know, we're in a world where we've got all these converging trends that even if the sun never has a super solar storm that wipes out the grid, and even if there's never an EMP, and even if there's never a pole shift, and even if there's never any of these, you know, a, a comet or a, a meteorite, large, at, small asteroid hitting the planet, even if none of those big black swan game-changing events ever happens, just the way we're doing business in our world, these trends are guaranteed to collapse the world as we know it, unless we radically change the way we do things in the world. And I wrote an article called The Perfect Storm, Six Trends Converging on Collapse. You can Google it and go to Huffington Post and went back viral on the Internet. I've, I've written like dozens of articles, but two of them in my life went extremely viral and are extremely important because they're talking about real threats to our planet that could take things down long term to where if and when our technological civilization recovers it will be an extremely different world from the one it was before before that those events happen so the perfect storm is six trends where you know it, we all go to school and we draw graphs and you know if the graph is is headed down and you don't do something different of it, graphing a trend and it's going to eventually hit bottom which means collapse time you know things crash and we've got six major trends identified in that article. They're all headed for that collapse point. Now, when they're going to hit the collapse, and how resilient our world is, and how much punishment our planet can take before you know we hit a tipping point and things really fall apart, no one really knows for sure. But we do know that if we don't change those trends, they're going to hit the bottom because that's the way graphs are and trends are. Now, the other article I wrote that went quite viral and is extremely important is called 400 Chernobyls, and there's varying versions of it on the Internet and, and a version of it that printed in Nexus magazine and that's uh, sent all over the world. And, and that's talking about the, the threats of both solar super solar storms 
and uh, EMP, electromagnetic pulse, which is what you were mentioning where some rogue nation or organization decides they really want to put it to the United States, and they launch a nuclear bomb on a missile, and they blow it off between like 50 and a couple hundred miles above the surface of the planet, and it in, in basically in a line of sight, it goes and it fries uh, most electronics within the affected zone. And so a small nuclear bomb on a small missile would do like a, about a 500-mile circle, would be pretty well cooked electronically. And, and a big nuclear bomb, like one from the Soviet Union arsenal, if somebody bought one on the black market and bought a Scud missile and, you know, took a junk freighter off the east coast of the United States and launched this Scud missile over and it, and it blew off over kind of central midwestern United States, then you'd have a 1,500-mile circle. Now, what would that cover? Well, you draw a circle on the map. It goes through Quebec City, Ontario. It surrounds Chicago. And it goes down through Miami and Dallas, Texas. And most of the, if most of the critical electronics that makes our world run within that circle would be fried, including the nuclear power plant control systems that keep power plants from melting down Fukushima-like. So you're talking with one single nuclear weapon on one single Scud missile blown over the United States from a rogue country or from a terrorist organization at the bottom of the black market. You're talking, oh, probably initiating 40 or 50 Fukushima-like events in the East Coast and totally cooking everything that pumps our water, does our sewage, runs our phones, uh, makes our power, pumps our gasoline, refines our gasoline. All the critical digital electronics that runs our factories, that makes, makes all these industrial processes run, fried and cooked in an instant. Now, would your iPhone work? Probably. Would your laptop work if it wasn't plugged in at the time? Almost certainly. Um, but would everything that makes our work, our world go around work? Probably very little of it would survive within the affected zone. Because it turns out that the complicated digital control systems that makes our modern world run are extremely vulnerable to electromagnetic pulse, both from the sun as well as from an EMP weapon, a nuclear weapon purposefully detonated just for that, just to uh, screw up electronics. And so, yeah, a lot of your small electrical stuff that people worry about, that'll be fine. It's the big stuff that makes our world work. It makes our world run. That stuff, not going to make it. Now, so on a larger scale, what can we do about it? Well, it turns out that for roughly the price of a billion dollars, a half a price of a, of a B-2 stealth bomber, that the technology's been developed to protect the grid, and everything in our world, really, in the modern world, the technological, non-third world, non-out-in-the-jungle you know, out in the jungle kind of world, um, it all depends on the grid. When the grid goes down, then everything cascading collapses after that. You know, In, in uh, three hours, the cell phone relay stations start running out of power. In three days, the telephone central switching station batteries are dead. Um, most places, hospitals and gas stations, you know, places with backup generators will have enough for three days to a week. Then they go dead. Our nuclear power plants are mandated to have 
uh, at least a week's worth of fuel on hand, and, and many of them have a month's worth of fuel on hand to keep their backup cooling systems going in the event of a major power failure where the grid's down for long term. So they're mandated by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to keep a week's worth of fuel on hand. And after I talked about that in my 400 Chernobyl's article, I had a few nuclear power plant operators call me up and say, well, we've got a month on hand. And it's like, well, that's great. Glad you got a month. Well, it turns out, according to the um, EMP Commission, that's a bipartisan you know, Republican-Democrat commission with a bunch of scientists on it and and uh, politicians that studied the, the threat of e EMP, uh, both from the sun, natural EMP, as well as uh, from nuclear power, nuclear bombs, EMP, they estimated that it would be many months and possibly years before the grid kind of got back up together and going in the event of a really, you know, major solar storm event, which would actually be the worst thing. The, the good news about an EMP, if there is good news, is that it's a fairly local event. You know, that 500-mile circle for a small EMP and that 1,500-mile circle for, like, a really major EMP weapon. But the rest of the world can at least come in and lend a hand and, and try to, you know, help put things back together. The bad news about an EMP is that the local electrical damage is far worse than the solar event. Uh, the solar event, however, that's when the sun... Now, just imagine this. 19, the last time it happened was 1921. And the time before that was the 1859... Uh, Carrington event. Right. So here we have, in the last 152 years, we've had two extreme solar events. Now, we've had about 100 major solar storms in that last 150 years. But we've had, out of that hundred, there's been two extreme events. Well, back in 1989, there was a major solar storm. You know, it, it screwed up flights over the North Pole, and it fried a giant electrical transformer in the Quebec power system, put out power for like nine hours to six million people. And it fried a big power transformer, like by Three Mile Island or somewhere, you know, some East Coast, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. And it fried one in the UK, but both the UK and the United States managed to keep the power grid up because only one of these big things fried. Well, it turns out from scientific modeling done by Meditech Corporation under the auspices of Oak Ridge National Labs and checked by Sandia National Labs. So these are like super brainer type guys. And they modeled electromagnetically and they said, well, this 1989 event that was a pretty major event was roughly one tenth as strong as the 18 as the 1921 event and the 1859 Carrington event. Carrington event was 50% stronger than the 1921 event and it lasted almost a full week in length because it was a, a giant coronal mass ejection came off of the sun and it was observed by this guy Richard Carrington and uh, and then they noticed the electromagnetic effect on the planet but this is 1859. I mean there is no power grid, there is no not much in the way of electrification. And um, so it was It was an incredible light show. It lit up from the North Pole all the way down to Hawaii and to uh, Puerto Rico at night, like blood red, green, orange, gold streaks. I mean, just incredible night show. And it lit up all the way from the South Pole north to uh, American Samoa. So it lit the entire planet up at night electromagnetically. The sky was multicolored, brilliant colors.
except for a very tiny sliver around the very deep tropical zones. And that makes sense because think about like you have a, a, a bar magnet and iron filings stick in the North Pole and the South Pole of the magnet, but they don't stick to the center because the North and South Poles balance each other out in the center of the magnet. So what happens is you have this, this coronal mass ejection coming from the sun. is this huge plasma of charged particles going extremely fast, like a thousand times faster than our rockets can fly. And it's coming, and most of the time they go out into space harmlessly, but on occasion they hit planet Earth and you get northern lights and southern lights and, and you get radio interference and all of that. Well, on a real occasion, like 1859, 1929, 1921, it just really zaps the planet, like direct hit, major coronal mass ejection, and it's electromagnetically just gets this, the, the electromagnetic spinning like a top on our planet. Now, it's not, you don't get the same effect near the tropics because the north and south poles have balanced each other out. So when this plasma hits, it just doesn't, it doesn't get the effect. It's hitting like a negative, a, a neutral field instead of a north pole and a south pole field. I hope that's all I'm going to talk about that. And I don't want to lose people on that. Anyway, it turns out when they did the electromagnetic computer modeling, that instead of frying one or two or three of these massive transformers that our grid's totally dependent upon, they'll fry like 350 to 400 in the United States alone and a couple thousand in the world. And people say, well, so what? So what if you fry a few transformers? They get spares, right? And it's like, well, you can't go to the hardware store. These transformers are 20 feet tall. They're, they're 100 tons. You have to shut down a freeway to deliver one. They cost tens of millions of dollars each. They're custom built and custom designed for every installation. And there's a three-year waiting line to get one. Now, in 2006 or so, they had a solar storm that caused 14 of these in South Africa to fry. They weren't all fried at once, but they, they caused enough damage that a total of 14 had to be replaced. Now, that's only 14. And what did that mean? Well, it meant that the entire country was on rolling blackouts for a year that the only way they could keep the grid going was to ration power. So imagine trying to do work where, you know, three or four days of the week, for four or five hours during your business day, you got no power, no lights, no refrigeration, no heat, no nothing. And that's like every day of the week this is happening. And, and it's the only way you can get any power is that they got to shut down large parts of the country for parts of every single day. Now, that was for only 14. Now, 350 go down in the United States. We're toast. We're toast. You know, place like Texas supposedly is hooked into the Mexican grid. So Texas may well be able to, you know, pretty much survive okay. And perhaps pieces, little pieces of Southern California or remote areas that have local generating capacity will be able to unhook themselves from the main grid and get themselves restarted. But most of the grid will just simply be collapsed for many months and possibly years. Definitely, yeah. definitely years. I had this conversation met with uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette years ago uh, about the current event, and he said it would take approximately 10 years for the grid to come back because of what you said about the, the, the time that it costs to, to ma you know, manufacture these transform transformers. Right. So what will our world look like when, you know, Put it this way, maybe we can start limping along like South Africa after a year and a half or so, and they can get rolling blackouts and things up. But in that year and a half, with no food deliveries, with no internet, 
with nuclear power plants melting down, and I'll go into that separate issue in a few minutes, um, with no sewage treatment, you know, like a city of New York City, where's 10 million people going to pee and poop? You mm-hmm. know, where are they going to get their water? I mean, they're all, all going to be drinking out of the Hudson River and the duck ponds. And you people in the desert, you may not even have that luxury. And, you know, 10 people who are going to the bathroom in all the rivers and all over the place, you know, how long is it going to take before cholera and other things just go rampant and start wiping out massive, you know, large percentage of the population dying? Because people be weakened. They won't have food. Um, they won't have proper shelter and clothing. Maybe it's winter time and it's freezing out there and they won't have clean access to clean water. And so you're talking chaos, you're talking anarchy and you're talking perfect storm for, for massive plagues taking out a huge percentage of the population because they'll be weakened and they won't have any medicine and they won't have, you know, access to clean water and, and food. So, so you're talking a world that when, if and when it puts itself back together, will look radically different than it does today and will be radically reduced in population, which as far as the uh, the animals of the world that are going extinct at record numbers these days, I mean, it's, it's probably the best thing that could happen to them. But as far as human beings are concerned, um, it's not going to be much fun. Absolutely. And... You know, we, we picked on the desert because we were discussing this prior to starting the show. But years ago, I had a friend of the show, A.C. Griffith. Uh, most of our listeners know who he was. He passed away last year. He used to call me at least once a week years ago. And he used to tell me, Mel, you need to leave the desert with your, with your family. When disaster strikes, that's going to be a very bad area. You need to go to the mountains and so on. And I think the same applies to the concrete jungle. You picked on New York City. Let's look at what happened during during Hurricane Sandy. And even months later, people were still without power. But two things that come to mind, as you say, water and food. During the Great Depression, what was it? 30% of the American workforce was engaged into farming and the majority of the U.S. population lived, uh, you know, a large percentage in rural areas. Today, right. less than 2% of the U.S. population is involved in farming. So less than 2%, Matt, is responsible for feeding the 98%. And this is during regular times. What about when disaster strikes? Yeah, you know, people sometimes ask me, they say, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I mean, I would love to, you know, have my five acres in the country with a nice solar spread and solar pumps to get water out of the well and a creek and a pond and all of that. But let's face it, that is out of reach for most of us in this world, you know, or we'd have it. And um, so when things really fall apart, it's not just going to be the people who had all that money to have all that cool stuff in that land that are going to pull through. It's going to be people with skills and talents that can can be a part of communities doing things kind of the old way where people pull together. You know, it really takes a village to pull through. Yeah. I mean, the the lone wolf, well, you know, somebody who's meaner and tougher and better organized might come along and say, well, I'm going to take their cool, all the guys, that guy's guns and all of his cool stuff and all of his food and things because... I got a bunch of buddies and, you know, we're, we're armed and he can't sleep. You know, he, he can't stay awake 24 seven. And, uh, so we're going to go and get it all. 
so it's it's really the strength is in community and is in sharing skills because no one person can know and do it all. And so if you don't have the wherewithal to get your five acres or store all that really cool stuff, then if you can work on your skills so you can be useful, whether it's healing skills, farming, you know, learn those self-reliant skills that will be needed. There will be a lot of, quote, sharecropping if this happens. And I hope it doesn't happen. I mean, I'm, I'm not sitting here, like, you know, rubbing my hands and just waiting and saying, God, I hope it all falls apart and I'm ready and nobody else is and I'm going to be, you know, Jeremiah Johnson and I'm going to, I'm going to pull through and I'm going to do this and, and all those poor suckers are going to starve and die and I'm going to be fine. That's not me. I'm, I'm hoping that we fix some of these problems, which are quite fixable, I believe. Uh, it just won't be fixed by doing the same thing. You know, Einstein's been quoted as saying in the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, and my answer to that is not, that's human nature. I mean, how many times have you failed at something and think like, well, I'm just going to do the same thing I just did and maybe this time it'll work. You know, you pick, knock the dust off yourself and try to do it the same way you did it before. Now, if you're smart, maybe you look at it and analyze why you failed and try to shift and change your, your behavior somewhat. And unfortunately, right now, the people in the one and two percent on top got there by the old, the old way of doing things, which is killing the planet. And so they have a huge stake in keeping that same way going because that's what keeps them on top and got them on top. But the reality is that all those six trends in the perfect storm are headed for collapse. And if we don't do something different and change our model, then the result is going to be like Einstein says, you know, keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same result. And if it's been degrading, it's going to keep degrading, and things can't keep degrading forever until, until they hit the end of the line. And that's exactly right. We are the human beings, we think we are the smartest on the planet, but yet we are, you know, cutting every single tree, we're depending on, on, on as, as you call it, fossil fuels. I don't think they're really fossil, but that's a different story. And we continue, you know, making plastic and, and, and killing the planet. Is it going to come to a point where the planet, like a, like a dog that shake its, shakes its fleas, that's going to press the reset button? And maybe the equation we would be an Earth without us? Uh, you know, that's the natural consequence of something called overshoot. So let me just... Read, this is the classic example that uh, scientists look at. Back in 1944, uh, some people got the bright idea that there was this 128-square-mile spot of land in the Bering Sea called Mat St. Matthew's Island. And they thought, you know, if we put some reindeer on here, there's like an abundant source of food, and, uh, you know, these reindeer could be there in case we had a war with Russia or someone got shipwrecked. There'd be all these cool reindeer that you could eat on this island. So what did they put? They, they brought uh, 29 deer there in 1944. In 1957, they had at least 1,350 deer. So those 29 deer from 1944, in just 13 years, grew to 1,350-plus deer. Now, 1963, just six more years, it quadrupled again, more than quadrupled, to 6,000 deer. Now, it turns out that an island that size from looking at other islands, it had a carrying capacity of roughly, you know, somewhere around 1,600, 2,000 reindeer. So basically they had 
three to four times as many deer on that island as the island could support in perpetuity. But see, they had no they had no predators. They had nothing to keep those deer from just multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. So then the the deer herd peaked at, at somewhere around over six thousand in 1963, and it collapsed to 42 deer in 1966. So what happened was that 6,000 deer just ate everything in sight. The rains came and it washed the topsoil away. The deer starved, and then the very last deer, the last sickly starving deer, died in the 1970s on St. Matthew's Island. There's not a single reindeer left, and that was... And, the, and it will be hundreds of years before it could support even a modest population of reindeer because they, the ecological damage was so devastating to the island because of the overpopulation of the deer. So basically, we are now, since 19, oh, roughly 1980, we passed the carrying capacity of our planet. Not to say that our planet could not support the numbers of people we have on it now in perpetuity, but it can't support it living the way we live and doing what we do on the planet now. So we're we're basically in what's called an overshoot situation on our planet. We're we're consuming our planet faster than it can recuperate each year. And you can keep that up for a while, and the planet starts degrading at a slow rate, and then it starts degrading at a higher rate and a higher rate and a higher rate. So like right now today, eleven of fifteen of the world's Major ocean fisheries are either already collapsed, like the richest fishery in the world, George's Bank, dead. All those fishermen, you know, in, in Newfoundland and off the eastern United States that went out in big, big fishing fleets from Gloucester, Massachusetts, fish George's Banks, they're all out of work. They, they can't do anything. It's dead. You know, so 11 of 15 of the world's major fisheries are either already collapsed or on the verge of collapse right now. We have the Great Barrier Reef, the richest reef in the world, has lost over 50% of its reef since the 1960s. Half of the Great Barrier Reef is now gone, just since the 1960s. 73% of the world's zooplankton is dead since the 1960s, and over half of that decline happened in the last 15 years. So what we're seeing is this accelerating, exponentially accelerating degradation of the planet. And it's signs. Like when I was a kid, they talked about it, but it was still kind of far away. You know, I, I was born in 1956, so 1960s, 1970, the population bomb was written. Um, 1970s, when I was at MIT, they wrote um, Limits to Growth, and people poo-pooed it and said, ah, see, the world's still fine, everything's fine, don't worry. You know, population bomb, he was just, you know, he's just a Cassandra, and, and Limits to Growth, see, everything's fine. Well, last 10 years really clear everything's not fine it's really clear we're running into we're running into the wall on our use of hydrocarbons our climate's starting to change in ways that are catastrophic for the planet uh we're seeing declines in the world's oceans and the fisheries declines in the coral reefs we're seeing six major rivers in the world now that don't even reach the ocean or barely reach it as a as a muddy little highly polluted trickle you know the yellow river in china for the first time in history, did not reach the ocean in something like 1973 for like 10 days. In recent years, it doesn't reach the ocean for like 290 days out of the year. The Yellow River does not reach the sea. It's dry, it's dry by the time it hits the sea because they're sucking it up for, for irrigation and for people and all of that. So we're seeing these signs all around us. and But so far, all we're doing is talking about it. Now, let's look at the 
Let's look at New Orleans. For 50 years, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers said that this is a disaster waiting to happen. It's not a question of if New Orleans will flood when a, when a category you know three or higher hurricane hits. It's a question of when will it catastrophically flood. They knew it was a disaster waiting to happen, and they told the authorities that these levees are inadequate and must be replaced. Well, for 50 years, it, it you know there was the attitude of it ain't broke, don't fix it. In fact, they even approved the money at one point, but you know the money got sloughed off in other things, and they never rebuilt the levees. So for 50 years, they ignored the warnings, and then look what happened to New Orleans. Now, we have similar warnings now from top scientists in the world about the threat to the grid from both EMP and solar storms. Now, EMP, you know, that's a survivable threat. Though, you know, if, it, if, it, if we have 30 or 40 Fukushima-like events, I mean, how survivable is it going to be for much of the eastern coast of the United States? But it's survivable in terms of the world. But if we have a solar storm, you know, and, and you have three or 400 Chernobyls happening around the world all at the same time, because of the solar storm, I don't know that that's a survivable event as far as human beings are concerned. Now, hopefully it won't be in that bad scenario, and hopefully we'll fix it. So back to one thing I was talking about earlier is for the price of a single B-2 bomber, we could not prevent all the bad stuff from happening, but we could prevent the worst stuff from happening. For the for half a B-2 bomber, we could we could implement these giant vacuum tubes technology that will will, in nanoseconds, switch the power around these massive transformers and shunt it to Earth to protect them, both from an EMP or a solar storm. And for another half, half, half a B-2 bomber, another billion dollars, we could put a year's worth of backup fuel and backup parts in EMP-hardened containers at all of our nuclear power plants to prevent them from melting down in the event of either a mega solar storm or an EMP situation. So here it is for the price of a single stealth bomber. We could prevent the end of the world as we know it from, from both of these huge game-changing black, black swan events. And right now, they're just talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Just like for 50 years, they talked about the levees around New Orleans. Now, how serious is this? Well, and, you know, you might say, well, Matt Stein, he's off in left field and he's, you know, even though he's got an MIT degree, blah, blah, blah. Well, Dr. William Graham, I keep wanting to call him Billy Graham, but that's a different <laughs> doctor. Dr. William Graham was very high uh, participating scientist in the U.S. nuclear program. He was Ronald Reagan's chief science advisor for a significant part of the, the Reagan administration. He wrote a letter to the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, last year, last August, and he copied Obama, and he copied a number of people in Congress and a number of congressional aides. And in that letter, he talked about the threat, both from EMP and solar storm, and he talked about the probability of multiple Fukushima-like events happening. Now, I didn't talk to him at the time, and he didn't talk to me at the time. We just both had the exact same conclusion. And believe me, Ronald Reagan's chief science advisor and a key key worker in the U.S. military nuclear program, a key scientist, is no left-wing out-there thinker, you know, and, and he's saying this is real. So this is real, and if enough people start, you know, making motions, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of talk and there's concern in Congress, and I don't think it's, it's going to take too much more 
to flip it. So this is why I encourage people to be active because speaking up and encouraging people to speak up and, and there's links if you go to uh, my website, wentechfails.com, um, scroll down the first page, there's 400 Chernobyls, click read more, it takes you to the whole article with all the hot links or you can see a not as good version on Huffington Post and there's a good version on Alternate and a good version on Truth Out and there's an article in Nexus Magazine. So all of those places and there's there's um, some resources you can click on in the hot links in the article on my website and, and to get active because this is an issue where it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, for like, what, officially $500 billion they bailed out Wall Street, unofficial several trillion, and here we're talking a tiny, tiny fraction of that, less than 1% of that to, to prevent the end of the world as we know it. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's like... Oh, Wall Street, we got to bail them out. But the end of the world, well, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not really going to happen. Well, on September 10th, 2001, Rumsfeld came out and said that they lost $2.3 trillion. But, you know, everything seems to be red tape, the bureaucracy. Take Japan as an example. In 1967, they had the plans to relocate Tokyo to the mountains or getting out of the coast because 85% of the population lives on the coast. And they knew that it was a matter of time before an earthquake slash tsunami would hit. And what happened on March 11, 2011? Fukushima. So it seems that politicians talk and talk, but they do nothing. Have you lobbied your case? $500 million seems like nothing in the scheme of things. Well, it's a, it's more like a billion dollars. It's two billion, a billion dollars for the vacuum tubes. Still. And another billion to protect the nuclear power plants. One stealth bomber is $2.2 billion for a stealth bomber. So yeah. you're talking less money than a single stealth bomber to, again, it won't prevent all bad things from happening. It will prevent the end of the world as we know it from happening. And, uh, perhaps the end of the species on the planet with the nuclear implica implications. So, People say, well, why would all these nuclear power plants melt down? And, you know, here's, here's the story. Is when, when the tsunami hit, the official reasoning is that the power plants uh, did not melt down directly because of the tsunami. That the tsunami hit and the earthquake hit, the earthquake hit and it knocked out the grid. Now, a nuclear power plant cannot function on its own without the grid. It, it'd be like trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hose and blow your face off. So the nuclear power plant, if the grid is down, goes into emergency, excuse me, emergency shutdown mode. So immediately the control rods slam into the fuel rods, start reducing the reaction. But, you know, it's not like a light switch. Nuclear power plant takes like a year. It actually takes three to five years to cool the rods to the point where they can be kept by themselves in the open air caskets with special heat transfer and not, not go critical and not melt and burn themselves up. And it takes, um, so it takes a long time to slow the reaction down enough to the point where these rods don't melt down if they're not, if they're not actively cool. So when, when the, when they, uh, they disconnect from the grid, they start slowing the process down. But like I said, it's, it just, it happens exponentially, but so it takes quite a while to really get them totally shut down. In the meantime, they got to pump millions of gallons of cooling water through there to keep those rods from overheating and burning up the power plant. So what happened in Fukushima is, you know, they had uh, four out of six power plants, four out of six nuclear reactors were operating at the time. Two were, two were down for refueling. And so one, they had, uh, I think, one, two, and five, and six were going. 
And so what happened is they all went in, the four that were, were still running went into emergency shutdown mode and, and the backup generators kicked in and the backup batteries kicked in to keep the pumps going. But then 20 minutes later, the tsunami came along. Well, five out of six of the nuclear reactors there, uh, three out of the four active, you know, working reactors, had backup generators on the ocean side. Yeah, talk about thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have cave paintings in the area that show tsunamis. You know, like cave paintings showed tsunamis hitting the area, and they build reactors right in this area where just the cavemen knew tsunamis happened. And uh, so, so these backup generators get wiped out, all except for the number six reactor. Well, 15 minutes later, reactors one and two start going critical, start melting down, permanently damaged, permanently unusable. They start blowing superheated steam inside the reactor. And what does that do? They, they get so hot, they start dissociating the, the, the water, the cooling water that's no longer circulating. It's just sitting there. It gets superheated. And it dissociates into oxygen and hydrogen gas. So these gases bubble up into the top of this containment dome. Now, these domes are like six feet thick of highly reinforced, you know, steel-reinforced concrete designed to contain any kind of internal explosion. Well, the superheated rods dissociate the, the water into hydrogen and oxygen. It boils up inside this containment dome. They recombine, and there's an explosion, and it breaches the dome. And you saw, all saw those pictures of big poofs of radioactive steam and stuff blowing out of the dome. So they fractured the dome. They opened them up. Highly radioactive water starts leaking down into the ocean, starts leaking into the, into the water system, into the ground. And, you know, highly radioactive steam starts going out. Well, reactor five, you say, well, why didn't that blow? Well, reactor five was right next to reactor six. So workmen were risking their life in there, and they were able to cobble together some emergency cables from reactor number from the generator at reactor number six to keep to get reactor number five cooling restarted. So they only had a partial meltdown of reactor number five. Now, here's the scarier part. When I wrote 400 Chernobyls, it's really more like 4,000 Chernobyls. See, it turns out that nuclear power plants, you know, these rods don't last forever. They start losing power after a year or two. So what they do is they have to take out the old fuel rods and store them under 20 feet of water. And they have these giant mechanical cranes that are built on the top of a reactor building. And these cranes reach in with mechanical linkages because the the radioactivity is so high that robots can't stand it. Electronics fry. It's got to be all strictly mechanical linkages. You know, electronics can't can't be near the the reactor rods because they'll just cook the electronics. So these big cranes, you know, industrial cranes, reach down and they, they mechanically unload these old reactor cores and, and they put them into a big, big, like, giant, you know, kind of like a swimming pool on the crane, like a big bucket. Mm-hmm. Because they're so radioactive, they put them in the bucket to keep them cool and to, and to cut a lot of the radiation coming off of them. Then they lift it up and then the crane moves along on steel rails and it goes over this thing called a spent fuel pond which is typically on the roof of this reactor building. That's right, on the roof. On the roof of the reactor building. And then the crane lowers the the rods down in the spent fuel ponds into specifically designed racks designed to keep the the rods separated from each other so they don't go critical and start superheating and and burning themselves up under the water 
and they're buried under 20 feet of water, and they got to keep that water cooling because otherwise, if you don't keep circulating the water, it starts boiling, and eventually it boils dry. Well, when it boils dry, these these rods are encased in a, in a metal called zirconium because regular steel can't handle a high level of radioactivity. It it, it just it get brittle and it just fall to pieces. So it's encased in zirconium. Well, zirconium turns out it burns like magnesium when it gets really, really hot. So if your reactors, if the water boils out of these spent fuel ponds, then all of a sudden, once the water's gone, then these rods are too close to each other without the, without the water to absorb both heat and the neutrons coming off the rods. So they start going critical. It doesn't mean they're going to blow up like a bomb. It means they just get hotter and hotter and hotter. And then they start igniting the zirconium cladding. And then it's like a big Roman candle, radioactive Roman candle. And it'll start burning just like Chernobyl burned. Now, Chernobyl was a different design. They had a graphite pile. It was a different design. But these rods and these spent fuel ponds are going to burn just like Chernobyl. And how much fuel ponds rods? The average spent fuel pond in, Chernobyl, in, in Fukushima has 10 Chernobyl's worth of fuel. In those four, in those four to six spent fuel ponds there. Now, if you want to see a really scary picture, Google Washington's blog, like George Washington with an S, Washington's blog spent fuel ponds. And they have a visual tour of the spent fuel ponds. They show you what all this really cool high tech machinery looked like when it was brand new and sparkling and worked right. And then they show you the shambles of the buildings in reactors one and two. Just blown to pieces. Amazing that they're still standing. And then they show you this fuel ponds. And all of that cool equipment designed to unload the fuel ponds is a pile of garbage lying inside the fuel ponds. And you see that. And you think, God, this is in a seismic zone. All it's going to take is one big shaker. These two buildings are just going to fall over like a house of cards. And the spent fuel ponds are going to be on the ground. They'll just start burning. And then people say, well, what do we do? Well, I'm not as worried about that as I am worried about a thousand, you know, hundreds of Fukushima-like events happening all over. Because I know in my heart that Japan has no choice, that they've got all these nuclear workers who feel guilty and they've signed up for suicide business. That's right. So they're going to go and they're going to encase it just like they did Chernobyl. They're going to encase it with a, with a, you know, concrete and steel and and dirt and stone and whatever they can dump on a sarcophagus, and hundreds of people are going to be killed or permanently disabled from the radiation they receive doing it. But I know they're going to do it. I mean, I, they don't have a choice. But imagine now if a solar storm comes along and the grid is down and nothing's working and there's mass chaos. Now, don't worry. The government has promised that the diesel fuel trucks are going to show up like clockwork at all 90, at all 106 nuclear power plants in the United States, and they're going to keep them running until whenever the grid comes back up. <laughs> Don't worry. Those, those, you know, everything else is going to fall apart, but those diesel fuel trucks are going to show up and deliver fuel like clockwork to keep those fuel, those, those power plants from going Fukushima like. So this is, this is real. Do you believe that? Of course not. <laughs> I don't believe in the tooth fairy or in Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was saying. I mean, if, if Katrina is not a sign, even years later with the hurric Hurricane Sandy, I mean, this was a, 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 what was it, a category one when he hit the, the East Coast? 
And and we see what happened. Imagine if it had been a Category 3 or 4. Now imagine 50 Katrinas hitting our country at once, and you're talking about the solar storm, and that's not even putting in the Fukushima-like event into the mix. I mean, you're... You know, just with the grid going down, it's like 50, 50 Katrinas hitting the United States at once. And, and you know, where's the cavalry going to come from? Because there is no place to send in the cavalry. That's a big solar storm. Now, throw into the mix that we have power plants blowing their tops and going critical and spent fuel ponds drying out. And the average spent fuel pond in the United States, there's 96 of them has 15 Chernobyl's worth of material in every single one of those 96. So let me just see. I got my calculator right here. So let's go 15 Chernobyl's times 96 spent fuel ponds. That's only 1,440 Chernobyl's worth of material in the spent fuel ponds in the United States. And, uh, and that's 106 out of 440 nuclear reactors worldwide. So that's a little less than a quarter of the world's nuclear reactors. So if you multiply by that by four, that's 5,760 Chernobyl's worth of material in spent fuel ponds around the world. Get rough guesstimate. Hey, maybe I'm off by 50%. Maybe it's only 3,000 Chernobyl's. Okay? Shoot me. Whatever. <laughs> it's like you're talking such a problem, and right now it's like pretend it isn't there and just hope. Wishful thinking don't make it so. Wishful thinking is like, you know, the sun is going to do its thing. It's done it average every 75 to 100 years. It could be 200 years before the next time it happens, and it could be two weeks before the next time it happens. And we don't know, but it's guaranteed to happen. We just don't know when. It's like a crap shot. You keep rolling the dice, and when you get snake eyes, well, <laughs> oh, sorry, I just thought we'd never get snake eyes. No, you're going to get, you roll the dice enough, you're going to get snake eyes. It's going to happen. But, but look at Chernobyl. This is 1986, Ukraine. One week after, they registered radiation in New York in the milk. Just imagine that. Right. And then now we have Fukushima. Do you think we're getting the real news about what's happening in Fukushima and what's happening around the planet because of Fukushima? No. we're Well, see, here's the difference between Fukushima and Chernobyl. 90% of Chernobyl's radiation went into the air. 90 to 100% of the released radiation went in the air. 90 plus percent of Fukushima is going in the ocean. Water. Yeah. Water. So you're, it's getting, you're not seeing the direct effects like Chernobyl, but it's still hugely serious. But they're, you know, they're worried. They have an active plan. They have these islands that they disputed with Russia in World War II that they've talked to Russia again about, you know, resettling people to if they have to. That's right. Because they're concerned that, you know, if, if, if something happens and they're not able to contain it and, can, and encase it like the cement sarcophagus in, in Chernobyl, they're concerned that they would have to. I mean, there's 17 million people or 35 million people in the greater Tokyo area. I don't know the number. It's, it's something really phenomenal and huge. I think it's 17 million directly and 35 million locally. So, you know, where are you going to put them and how are you going to do that? How yeah, do you, how do you relocate so I, many millions of people? Yeah, you know, what do you do? I mean, let's face it. There's Right now, they're shrinking the zone around Fukushima and saying, oh, it's okay, you can live. Like, now it's only two and a half miles away or something. And before it was 10, and the United States said, I'd stay at least 50 miles away. Well, you know, you know that it's not right. 
and that statistically those people who are the closer you are to it, the worse you're going to be in terms of statistics. But it turns out, like in Chernobyl, there was something like 250 people that died directly. And then there was a, you know, UN study that said like 10,000 people died short term. Well, the Russian science, you know, scientific major institution of Russia did an epistemological study recently. And they found that a million people died short-term deaths um, from the radiation caused by Chernobyl by studying the statistics, statistical changes in, you know, cancers and tumors and all of that. And three million people were sickened and permanently disabled by Chernobyl. So that's a single Chernobyl killed in the next, you know, in in the last three decades. A million people died, early deaths, disgusting early, horrible deaths because of Chernobyl, and three million people got sickened and permanently disabled by Chernobyl. So, you know, this is huge, and that's just one. And we've got 442 reactors in the world, give or take a few, and 106 in the United States. And on top of that, we have an average worldwide, say, of at least 10 Chernobyl's worth of material from stored and spent fuel ponds for every single operating reactor because we got no we got no place to do we haven't figured out what to do with the waste so we just put it in these ponds and let it sit there now in in japan they had a bunch of those uh one of the reasons they don't only had like they had more like 10 instead of 15 chernobyl's worth in the ponds is that they use dry storage casts which are expensive they cost over a million bucks a piece but they have special casts designed to handle the old fuel rods, after they've been in the ponds for a few years, they can take them out and put them in these special casts that are designed. And they didn't have a failure of a single dry fuel cask in the, uh, in the, in the earthquake or the tsunami. So every single fuel rod stored in a dry fuel cask was safe and sound, even after the tsunami and after the earthquake. Do they use them in the United States? No, nah, they're too expensive. Nah, you know, just stick them in the ponds and everything's going to be okay. You know, I went to Cuba in the mid-90s, and I remember seeing some of the people, some of the survivors from Chernobyl. And now with, with Japan, it's, it's, it's going to be generations before we see the mutations, the DNA alterations. How about the sea life, all the fish that we eat, and so on. But we have to take a one and only intermission. And when we come back, Matt, I would like you to discuss, I want you to, and, and we're not doing this, folks, to, to spread fear. We want to just be prepared. If you buy your car, the first thing you do is you buy a, an insurance policy. You're not buying it because you think, today I'm just going to suffer a car crash, head-on collision. No, it's a peace of mind. And that's exactly what you're trying to do with these books. Uh, how do people buy these books and where, Matt? Well, um, if, if you go to my website, When Tech Fails, and click on the books, it will take you to Amazon and I get a modest... Uh, associates fee off of it that helps cover the costs of of these of putting up these websites and putting out this information. I mean, I think after 13 years, I finally broke even on my book. I would have made money on it, but my first publisher is bankrupt and never paid me. I had to hire lawyers to get my own book back, all that. So after only 13 years of you know putting my life and soul into this, I finally broke even. So I probably made like you know 10 cents an hour for the thousands of hours I put into it. But if you can buy them at Amazon, you can buy them at Barnes and Noble, you can buy them. You can. I always encourage people to support the local bookstore. So if you got a favorite bookstore, 
go down there and if they don't already carry it, ask them to order it for you and in two or three days it'll be in. It's it's stocked in all the major distribution centers. So you can get it pretty much any way you can buy any book you can get it. But like I said, if you go to Wintech Fails or Matt Stein, Matt with one T Stein dot com, then uh, there'll be little things symbols on the side, you can click on the picture of the book cover and, and it'll take you to a link to buy it and, and it'll help support the website and the work I do. I have to tell you folks, I have these two books right here. I have a large library, but these two books have a very special place for me to be able to access them uh, all the time. When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails. And if you go camping, if you travel, all the things that you discuss here, and I was even pleasantly surprised that you discuss one one thing that we endorse here on, on this show, and that's MMS. You even discussed that here, so I was very, very surprised to see that. When we come back, we're going to paint a picture, folks. We're going to discuss some of the most probable scenarios in how to mitigate them. I'm here with Matthew Stein. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.